Hello, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I, and I Think You're Interesting. And Aisha Tyler tires me out. I'm a workaholic. I host this show. I write articles for Vox. I try to see every notable movie and TV show, which is really hard to do nowadays. I'm constantly running everywhere with my hair on fire. And in the last couple of years, this has really started to wear on me. The pace that I kept 10 years ago increasingly feels unsustainable. Like I'm in one of those old cartoons and I just ran off a cliff and my legs are churning away at the air, but the drop is coming. So when I say Aisha Tyler tires me out, that is a good thing. That is a hopeful thing. I look at just how much she does. The woman is a series regular on FXX's brilliantly bawdy animated comedy Archer and CBS's long-running crime drama Criminal Minds. She hosts the new talk show Unapologetic on AMC, and she's got like three million other irons in the fire at any given time. So I look at all of that and I think, hey, maybe there's hope for me yet. The woman just directed and released her first feature film, and I don't know where she found the time to do that. I first got to know Aisha, as a lot of folks did, as the third host of E's long-running Talk Soup, which brilliantly snarked on talk shows and other daytime TV. But I've come to know her just as well for her hilarious comedy, her on-point performances, and her expert dissections of the world of nerd culture, a space that isn't always welcoming to black women, but one in which she carved out a space for herself anyway. So we talked about that, and we talked about how she learned to deal with the insults and pejoratives by simply not caring. But we also talked about how she keeps moving with that busy schedule, her early days in stand-up comedy, and what she's learned about the two long-running characters she plays on television, Lana Kane on Archer and Aisha Tyler in a bunch of other places. Stick around, because she's way funnier than I am. My guest today, Aisha Tyler, you may know her from... So many things, Aisha. <laughs> it's so nice to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So when we were setting this up, mm-hmm. I was talking with your publicist mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, she was saying, well, you know, of course, Archer and you have this new show you're hosting on AMC and all this stuff. And then she listed like five other things, like you're doing a cocktail line and all this stuff. Uh, I just want to talk with you about time management for oh, like an hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, how do you how do you keep yourself uh, on schedule? Like, do you have like a really elaborate bullet journaling system? Oh or? my god, that's amazing! So, like, when I was doing my podcast, uh, a lot of people would ask me that question, and I I wanted to have like a really like elaborate set of answers or like some kind of like you know, color-coded workflow system, like, you know, the Aisha Tyler system. I don't. <laughs> um, I did I did go through an intense period of, like, productivity management research. Where I was, like, listening to, like, Max Sparky and, like, other podcasts about, like, how to manage my my mail and things like that. This is so boring, guys. We're kicking it off to, like, wow, just <laughs> I'm sure everyone has an erection. Um, but, uh, so I have a few things I do. Like, I do manage my, my email in a certain way, which I got off of listening to a podcast so that I get to uh, Inbox Zero, like, every day. Like, that's – now it's a game. Like, now my game is, like, Inbox Zero. Like, I don't have time to do a video game, so, like, the one game I play is, like, Inbox Zero. Mainly, I'm just, like, screeching from place to place place like sweating buckets and yeah. like in like low level state of panic and desperation all day every day just penny taste in my mouth 100% of the time <laughs> totally um and i get up in the morning and i just like execute my list until i am too tired and then yeah. i move those things to the next day and then i execute again it's really simple i i'm 
overscheduled as mm-hmm. well. And yeah. I used to just keep it all in my head. Don't like do I, that. I, Don't I just, ju- never do that. Oh, no. no. <laughs> I just like had it all rem- memorized. But now that I'm firmly in my 30s, that's yeah. starting to slip. It, and- oh, well, it's good. it'll be gone in like four or five days. <laughs> Maybe during this interview, you'll forget why you're here. Um, no, I, I cannot. I used to like I used to keep a written calendar back in the old days when people used pen and paper. Yeah. And I will say that like my whole like my whole life is in this calendar app on my phone. And it it's good because it, it like for me anyway, creatively, it allows me to only think about being creative and yeah. not to think about stuff because like, like if I, if I'm focused on like, like where I have to be at any time, those things will never get done. I will never remember. Even now I'm constantly getting texts. The most common text I get is we're all on the call. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah. Oh yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I have, I, I just look at my phone constantly and, uh, that way, like my brain is just filled with like, you know, fart jokes and crazy ideas, you know, which is what should be in there and not like doctor's appointment at three fifteen and yeah. what's the address. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Do you, like that pace. I know a lot of journalists like love that pace and Mm -hmm. a lot of artists love that pace, like always going, always doing. But some people are just sort of like they have a lot of commitments. They Mm -hmm. just have to do it and they don't like it. Do you enjoy the pace? I would admit very reluctantly that I do. Like I thrive, I thrive under like unmanageable requirements, you know, and I, I, I don't think I understood that about myself until I got a little older. Like I think one of the interesting things about being in your 30s or older than that is um, like starting to understand how you function. Uh, and you, when you're in your 20s, you spend a lot of time thinking like, I should be more like this. I need to be more disciplined. I started out as a stand-up comic. So I was like, man, I should write every day. I should sit down and write like jokes all day, like three hours a day, write jokes, write jokes. And I just... Never did it. And so then I would spend a lot of time beating myself up for being a bad person, being lazy, being undisciplined until I realized that just wasn't my process. Like I just didn't operate well under those conditions. And so I found a way to be creative that worked for me. And like most of life is just figuring out like like what your operating system is instead of trying to jam your operating system into somebody else's structure. Mm. So uh, I'm a workaholic. Mm. Hi, Aisha. (laughs) Um, When I am not busy, I feel very anxious and lazy and like intensely guilty, you know, I'm sure we can unpack it in therapy, but you know, like the blunt answer is A, I thrive on adrenaline and B, I know I occupied a pretty rarefied space, you know, just generally I came from a, like a working class family. I mean, now we're a color working class, we're poor, you know what I mean? Like I know that the things I have are a product of luck, good fortune, and then industry. And so I just try to respect it by like not like frittering it away on cocaine and whores. If that's how you choose to spend your time, I'm not going to like judge you or anything. I'm sure it's it's a good time. I mean, I'm sure doing coke off a person is a lot more fun than doing it off like a credit card or your phone <laughs> screen. I don't know. Don't do drugs, kids. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're interesting. Does not endorse doing cocaine. No, 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 no. I mean, we're just not, this is a, this is a, just a judgment free space. You know, you know what I mean? Like you do you. I mean, enjoy yeah, enjoy your life. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Archer just completed its ninth season last night. But you've now played this character, I think, longer than any other character you've played? Definitely longer than any other character, but actual Aisha Tyler. What have you sort of learned from that process of, obviously, she's been different people over the years. She's You've done a lot of variations on but it always kind of comes back to, this is Lana Kane. Like, what, what's it like living and growing with a character for almost a decade now? I really like her. 
I was just I was just watching an episode of the show. You know, I, I'm not one of those people like watches my stuff, and then people come up and go, "I love that episode." I'm like, "No idea what you're talking about." So I, I occasionally will just kind of like jam a bunch of stuff in, just so I have like a sense of what's going on. And so I was just watching an episode of the show um, the other night where uh, Lana Lukalani gets in trouble with her parents. That's not really giving things away if you haven't watched it yet. And it was just really fun to see how she's evolved over time. I mean, you know, her fundamental structure is still there, but she's gotten like more multidimensional, more kind of vulnerable and fraught, and then also more herself as well, which I find really interesting. And, you know, part of that reason is that she's been around long enough that we can kind of give her these like little chinks in her armor. I mean, you know, the most fraught and frail and and flawed person on that show is Archer. And so for a long time, Lana was there to kind of be like a backstop, you know, uh, for him. She was like, you know, his his uh, his racquetball wall. But, you know, as the show's moved and evolved and expanded, she's gotten to kind of be more herself and she doesn't doubt herself, but she's just allowed to be more self-examining, which I really like. I just, she's super funny and, and she's strange, which I like. I mean, she was kind of the straight man for a while and, and that's gone away. It's always much more interesting to play a weirdo. Yeah. I was going to ask about that because this is not a show that lacks for weird women, mm-hmm. which is not always the case on TV. That's true. Um, All the women on the show are delightfully <laughs> strange and malfunctioning. But Lana, like for a long time, was, you know, kind of the, the person who kept everything man. on track. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Do you, did you find that limiting at all? Or is that is that a fun role to play? Because it's necessary for right. comedy. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's only frustrating if you can't be funny. And yeah. luckily, she always was able to be funny. And, you know, she was she was always the person who, like, you know, had read the manual and uh, and had, had loaded her gun and had remembered remembered pants. But um, but she still got to be funny. You know, a, a big source of her comedy was her intensity and her aggression and her kind of lack of tolerance for fools. So yeah, like if she had just been the straight man, I think it would have been really boring. But she always got, she was just, she was a badass. And she was like, you know, super sex positive and And that was always really fun to play because she was unapologetically sex positive on a show where in the beginning... The male character, the lead male character was, you know, the most mansplaining, woman using, you know, self aggrandizing jackass, you know, on television. I mean, he was, Adams described Archer as, you know, kind of like a, a bond without the conscience, you know, and the fact that you had a woman who just never thought he was, never thought that was adorable. You know what I mean? It was like, you know, you're just full of, I'm saying shit, guys. You can figure out what to do with it later. Uh, you know, we swear on this Okay, podcast. thank All God. Time, I didn't so. know, I didn't know who I was with. I'm glad we cleared that up. Um, you know, that he was full of shit and she was and she wasn't going to tolerate it, which right. James Bond never had. You know, I mean, he had women who were kind of his equal, but none that really put him back in his place. And, and Lana was really there um, to kind of remind him who was boss and, you know, and 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 who was the adult in their relationship. But that didn't mean that she was kind of like sitting at home, you know, with like gluten-free pasta in a, you know, she was like out there getting laid like everybody else. Yeah. So I, I really, I, I really feel like it's an extreme expression of human uh, complexity that Adam has written. I mean, it's obviously a, a cartoon and, and everything's been stretched almost to the breaking point. But we we all recognize these people, you know, in others and in ourselves. Yeah, it's an extreme expression of, of human frailty with yeah. the talking parrot. In it. Oh, yeah, with the talking parrots. <laughs> the talking parrots, like, well, maybe, he, maybe we stretched him to the breaking point. But he, he's, the only, he's the only guy making any sense this yeah. season, isn't he? He's the one guy who's like using any reason. It's pretty great. If you've never seen Archer, it's got one of the great ensemble casts on TV. It's got yourself. It's got H. John Benjamin, Jessica. Walter, Judy Greer, all these, like if I listed all of them, you'd recognize all of their names. Mm-hmm. But 
one of the things that Chris Parnell, Chris Parnell, who's yeah, an extraordinary, yeah, human one the, being. One of the things I think is interesting is that you all sort of record separately. We do, and like it's not like a regular TV ensemble cast situation where you see each other every week or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you do get to like go to comic cons and mm-hmm. you've done some live shows and stuff. Tell me about like. What's that like? Like, do you guys have that sort of ensemble chemistry in real life? Quote? We do. Yeah. We do. And and it's it's born of a couple of things. In the very beginning, we didn't interact at all, actually. Um, and the first time we got together was after season one at Comic-Con. And, and we, we were very much strangers, you know, like all from like very different kind of places geographically and also like in terms of like who we were as artists and where we were in our careers. And then at about around, I want to say around season three or four, we started touring. We started doing these Archer live shows where we would read um, scenes from the show on stage and we would bring audience members up, you know, who were cosplaying. And and so we'd have this kind of unfettered social time because we'd be together like all day. We'd do like an hour long show and then we'd go out and drink until two o'clock in the morning. Uh, and we'd drink on stage and, you know, we'd shoot people in the dick with like T-shirt cannons and stuff like that. It was delightful. I remember one year um, this woman came up and we were going to dress her up like Pam and she was going to read a, a scene with us. And she was backstage and Lucky was like putting the wardrobe on her. And she goes, is it always this fucked up? And he was like, yep. <laughs> um, so there was always this kind of mutual respect for everybody as as comedic actors. And then we were just delighting so intensely in each other's company because we didn't ever see each other. We were just this kind of drunk puppy scrum every time we got together. And there's something wonderful about the only time you're together, you're just trying to be as funny as you possibly can, like in a crucible. Like you've got an hour and a half to be hilarious. And with no expectations or restrictions. I mean, really, we just got up there and we just tried to be funny with each other. So, you know, it was like a very, very drunk groundlings performance or something. And yeah, and now, you know, we spend Comic-Con together. We do New York Comic-Con together. And then we did these shows for a while and we're quite close. So, you know, now we're in our ninth year and, you know, people have babies, which is dumb. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so we don't get to spend as much time together as, as I would like. I, I really love these guys. But we we chat a lot. We have like a little little chat group, little text, little text group. There's none of the infighting or the combativeness that you can sometimes get on a show where some one guy's trailer is bigger or something like that. You know, we just love each other. Well, you, you're talking about sort of these live shows and you started out in stand-up, as you said earlier. Can you remember like those early days of doing stand-up? Like what, what those first few shows were like and, and what do you think you get from a live audience that maybe you don't get when you're, you know, doing uh, uh, Criminal Minds or something right, like that? Right, right. Well, let's see. You asked me what I remember. I'll answer that question first. Yeah. Uh, you know, just abject fear. Um, <laughs> panic is uh, so slow leaking from the anus. I wasn't like one of those kids who like collected comedy albums as a kid and, and like dreamt of being a comic. Like I was a really bookish kid and, and very nerdy and a social pariah for like a fair part of my childhood. I had uh, Seth Green on my podcast years ago and, and he was saying, it's great that nerd culture is being celebrated, but you can't claim to be a nerd if you didn't play alone for a significant portion of your childhood, which I did. I mean, I would say until I was like in high school. No, maybe like the end of middle school. I mean, I was just like a total loner. And I think it made me a good observer of other people and like a lover of movies and, and comic books and video games, which were all things I could do alone to amuse myself. But I think the observational part was really what maybe played into me becoming a comedian. And then as I got a little older, you know, also, and I think Chris Rocca said this too, you know, if you're an outsider, like, you know, you, you try to get funny or tell stories to just either A, ingratiate yourself or B, prevent, you know, an ass kicking, you know. But I was going to be a, a, like a lawyer or something. And, and I just was unhappy in, in my day job and 
felt like I wanted to do something creative and stand up was the only thing you didn't need to know anybody or have an agent or get booked for. You could just go do it. And I just thought, I'll just try it and see if I liked it. And I fell in love in one, you know, I mean, it was not, it wasn't, it wasn't funny. <laughs> that's not, that's not important. I just liked being up there, you know? And, you know, your, every, every comic will tell you your first set is your best set for the next like 10 years because you have no expectations and every, every laugh is like this magical gift. And then I just spent like, you know, a long time after that, just being adequate and serviceable and panicked and, and nervous and ticky. And, but, you know, I just was passionate about it. And I was also a very, you know, look, I, I look the way I look and I talk the way I talk. And when I started doing stand up, it was right at the heyday of like, you know, Def Comedy Jam. And then after that, Kings of Comedy. And I was not doing or sounding like any of the stuff that people expected a, a African-American woman to be doing or, or saying on stage. And, and it really took me a very long time to find my tribe. Um, so I had to be really committed to authenticity over laughs because I could have really, you know, played a character. I could have gone up and, and you know, pretended to be somebody else. But I knew early on I was never going to be able to do it in an authentic way. And I was just going to have to stick to my guns and talk about the stuff that was personal and meaningful to me. And then hopefully people who were like me would find me. And I think doing things that way, and I think this applies to anything, any field, especially an artistic field, made me a stronger and a tougher, a mentally tougher comedian because I wasn't, I would just be like, this is who I am and I'm just going to keep doing this and being as good at it as I can possibly be until the right people connect with it versus like being a bellwether and just trying to swing which way, you know, what was the most popular kind of comedy was alt comedy was popular, the comedy jam was popular, like I just was like, I'm going to stick to my guns. And, and so it made me, I think, like mentally very, very tough because I had just a lot of sets where I just didn't get any laughs. You know yeah. what I mean? I say this all the time, but like killing doesn't make you funny. It's only bombing that makes you funny. Mm. You know, when you kill, you just like drop the fucking spot on that bitch's bam shots, you know, and no, you know, you walk off and rubbing your stomach and flashing your tits at everybody. Um, that's not what I do, guys. I've just, I've seen it. But when you bomb, you really have to like re-examine every creative choice you've made and right. think about whether it was the right one. And slowly, 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 my audience has found me. So I think what you get from those live shows is a a real a true understanding of what's funny, like a like a, like a, an in your like a marrow based understanding of what's funny. Because when you do it long enough, you just know this is going to land. This isn't going to land. And and I, you know, it was stand up. I've been stand for twenty five years, so now I, I I have an intuitive sense of what I think is going to work. And then you just get a fearlessness too that just translates into every other aspect of your work. Because, you know, you just – when you fail enough in front of a group of people who are telling you right then I hate you and what you do and everything you stand for and you don't die, then nothing can hurt you. I've done stand-up three times in my life. <laughs> You're right in the sweet spot of, <laughs> oh, God, why me? <laughs> the first time went great and then yeah, the, next two time, great. the next two times did not and I was like, okay. Yeah, yeah first time's here. great. First time's great for everybody. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, but I, I'm wondering, like, was there a time when you were like uh, – maybe you bombed and it didn't work but you were like, I know this is funny. Oh, I totally. know this material works. And like how did you sort of gain that confidence to like I just need to find the people who think it's funny too? You know, it's just um, – and I tell you a story, quick story. And I That's great. I, could, I could remember story, this yeah. comics. I wish I could remember this comedian's name. I'm a terrible person. I can't remember anything. That's another reason why I use uh, my phone so much is I really cannot remember anything. This is a comic that was really uh, like working really like uh, prevalently when I was in San Francisco and when I started in the 90s. And he he did this bit where he got on stage. Oh, 
guys, you can tweet me, but not with vitriol, okay? I, I've already said I'm, I'm, I'm an asshole for not remembering. He got on stage and he ate a pack of Hostess powdered donut gems and read from like Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. <laughs> and like, it's funny as a concept, but it kind of didn't work, but then it kind of did, right? So he'd get up there and he'd start and it was kind of funny. And then when people realized there was no punchline, they would get really annoyed with him and then they would get angry and then they would boo. And then he just was relentless. He just would not stop. And then, you know, disgust turned to like, you know, kind of like moderate respect turned into like him cheering, uh, people cheering him on, turned into like, this guy's a genius. And so like the common denominator is just relentlessness, right? Just, just a willingness to commit to your choices. And there are a lot of comedians who have done this, you know, another, a different kind of example is, you know, the infamous set that Bill Burr did at the, like the Winnie Roast in New Jersey when he got booed, like, like a solid wall of boo for like 10 minutes, right? Yep. And he had to stay on stage for 10 minutes or he wasn't going to get paid. And he was, it wasn't like people were ignoring him. They were just actively screaming and throwing things and calling him names and cursing his, his offspring. And he was just like, I'm not moving. Yeah. And it went from this wall of boo to this like standing ovation. And I think, and that doesn't mean that just standing up there and like refusing to move is going to get you anything but arrested. But, um, but I think it, what made me continue when it was awful or, you know, or at least, you know, not particularly fun was just, I loved being a standup. Like I loved it and I loved it more than I disliked bombing. And I remember like, there's so many sets like this, but there was this one set, there was this place in San Francisco called the Brainwash. It was like a laundromat. And they would do um, stand-up shows there, like, in a back room, like, a couple nights a week. And they were, like, open mics, essentially. And the whole audience was comics. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that they don't want to laugh. It's just that they don't care to. You know what I mean? Like, they're looking at their set list. They're, like, waiting for you to get off so they can get on. And I just remember doing this show and just, like, not one laugh. And it was so funny to me. Like, I got off stage like, <laughs> and nobody laughed. Like, that was amazing. I, it was, like, a feat. I think that was when I knew I was a comic. I was, like, that, that did nothing to me. It hurt. It just made me strong. I think that, you know, interesting art comes from people who are unwavering in their vision. And so for me, and, I, you know, something I know now, I don't think I knew it then. I just thought I'm going to be a comic and I'm not going to stop. And then, you know, you, you start to mine little veins and they feel good to you, you know, and then you put jokes down because they're getting laughs, but, they, but they're not right. They don't really say anything important. And you slowly cobble something together. But you have to want, you have to want, you have to be a glutton for punishment. You have to want to be, you know, out at one o'clock on a Wednesday night and you have to want to work for no money and be, you know, insulted and ignored. I mean, you have to really want it. And if you can't tolerate those things, like there's just, there's no point. It's, it's not a glamorous job. Chris Rock is glamorous, sure. But, you know, 30 years later, he's glamorous. You know, I mean, every comic will tell you that they went through a period where it's just the least fun it could possibly be. When you were in those early days of your career, what were you, what were you doing for money? What were, what were your day jobs? Oh, I had day jobs. I had lots of day jobs. I, I you know, I, I was going to be a corporate goon. So, um, I worked for a while at a nonprofit that, um, bought urban parks for underserved areas. And I, it was a dream job. It was like exactly what I wanted to do. I was a big hippie and I wanted to be an environmental lawyer and I was miserable. And that was when I figured out like maybe I wasn't in the right field because I had a, a dream job and I didn't like it. So I was doing stand-up at night, and then and then I went on the road for a little while, and then I came back to San Francisco, and I worked at an advertising agency. I got I tempted, and I'm aggressive. I mean, I'm just an aggressive human being. So like, if I come in, I'm just gonna I'm breaking everything. So I like I tempted there for like a week, and then they hired me, and then by the time I left two two years later, I was an account executive because I'm just I don't stop. So um, I was working there, and 
advertising people know it's just insane hours. It's like two in the morning. It's weekends. But I'd go in at like five in the morning so that I could leave at like four in the afternoon so that I could like drive two hours to Sacramento to do like a free show for chicken wings, you know, in like some shit bar. And then I would drive back. And I did that. And then I moved to L.A. And I just transferred offices, same advertising agency. And I worked there for a while. And at that point, like my career was, eh, I wasn't really putting my back into it anymore. And in advertising, when the client leaves a company, which happens all the time, they move from company to company and agency to agency. So when a client leaves an agency, they say, you know, that client went away. It's not, we didn't get fired. That client went away. So when my client went away, I had two clients. And when they went away, I just, I left and, um, and lived off of credit cards for a long period of time. You know, we have this weird stereotype that women aren't funny. Mm-hmm. Who were your favorite funny women that you looked to like professionally? And I guess personally, like are the women in your family funny? Right. Well, answer the second question first, which is that like the women in my family are very funny. And my family is very funny. My sister is actually much funnier than me. Mm-hmm. She's she's a pharmacist, so, you know, whoops. But um, <laughs> she's hilarious. Uh, my family was like a story family. So like, you know, dinner time was like – you know, my dad like yanking the tablecloth off the table to like make a point, you know, and us all thinking it was like hilarious. But my sister is wildly funny. My mother is more like dryly sarcastic. Um, but my sister is just like the funniest, most entertaining human being, like way cooler than me, way more interesting. I love going out with her. Like, it, you know, it's kind of disappointing because my friend's like, I love your sister. I'm like, yeah, fine. Okay, great. You guys, I know you want to trade me in on a cooler model. That's fine. But my sister is, is really funny. Um, funny women. When I was a baby comic, I'll be very frank, and then I'm ashamed of this, most of my comedic idols were men. And that's because there weren't a lot of women doing stand-up. And it's also because a lot of women were – talk about gatekeeping. A lot of women were being corralled into doing a certain kind of comedy when I was young because they were told that was the only way they were going to make any headway. So when I was a baby comic – the big thing were these like lady ladies nights out where they would have like an all female lineup, you know, and and the comedy would be very like you know guys right live out the toilet seat, have the remote control, compulsive masturbation. I'm sure those women wanted to talk about more interesting things, but like they were forced into this box, which club owners were telling them was the only way they were going to get stage time. The women that I really loved, a lot of them were my contemporaries. Sue Murphy is one. Maria Bamford is someone who I just continue to adore because she just carved such a specific space for herself and has never relented. And maybe that's because you can't, but I just love her. I think she's brilliant. I always watched Maria and I think, I could never think of the shit that she thinks of. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> God damn it. Like, sometimes you watch a comic, you're like, I could have written that joke. And then yeah. you watch Maria, you're like, shit, I don't even know what's happening right now. Um, I love her. Ginny Garofalo is also someone who I liked because she was so casual and and kind of effortlessly strange. You know, yeah. she just wasn't there to cater to people, which I always really liked. It, it just felt like, you know, it was her house when she was on stage and you could get on or get off, you know, which I really liked. When I was really young, you know, she was never a real stand-up, but I really loved Whoopi Goldberg because she was so different. And I also loved what she was able to do. You know, I mean, most of her hit movies, people might not know this, but most of her hit movies were roles written for written for white men. Mm-hmm. And she took these movies and made the, her, them her own, and they were, you know, Jumpa Jack Flash. Those were movies that were written, like, for men and then, you know, kind of turned around to be for women. And then I just, I really remember it, ad- admiring that about her. When you started out, uh, you, you were talking about how there was sort of this niche for black comics especially, but women comics, et cetera. That seems a little different now. To me, it seems to me like it's easier for comics to explode that niche, young comics. Do you think that's the case? Do you think it's easier for, a, a, say, a young black woman who wants to be a comedian to like 
find her space thanks to things like Twitter, you know, Instagram, things like that. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the digital era has absolutely changed everything for comedians of color, for women, because the fact of the matter is you can speak directly to your audience without even being on a stage now. You could just be like a Twitter comic and just be writing jokes on Twitter. I know guys who just write jokes on Twitter. I mean, I think, I think I might be getting this wrong, but I think John Delaney, like he was famous for just being like Twitter joke guy. And then he got writing jobs from that. So like the power, I think there's so much more power in the hands of the artist. Um, you can do your own YouTube videos. You can make your own stuff. I mean, when I started my podcast, I started Girl and Guy, which uh, is now sleeping, but 220 episodes are still available for download online if you'd like to go back and give my give my show the wire treatment. Uh, five year, five seasons are still available. I'll recap every episode. Uh, thank you. <laughs> you know, I did it because I wanted a creative outlet and then I just made one and that just wasn't, that just wasn't available when I was, when I was a younger comedian. Um, and I think like just diversity in output, diversity in, in content is just creating a space for lots of people to like create something personal. Um, because you know, the great thing about a podcast is it doesn't really cost you any money to make it. Uh, and you can put it out there and then people will find it. And and there's nobody coming and telling you like, this doesn't work. This isn't right. Um, so I do, I do think it's changing. And I mean, obviously something like two dope Queens is, is making a difference or, you know, even Issa Rae was, you know, doing a little web series and it's turned into this massive HBO show, you know, that's just because of, of technology. And I was somewhere recently, I can't remember. And some DP was talking about how everybody's a filmmaker nowadays. And I was like, yeah, everybody's a filmmaker nowadays. I mean, if it's shit, it's going to stay shit. You know, it, just cause someone made it doesn't mean it's not, it's going to magically not suck. But you know, the fact of the matter is like better, more diverse, more robust voices are rising to the surface. More interesting stuff is getting made. You know, it's the golden era for for great content. It's also the golden era for shit content. But you can't have one without the other, unfortunately. So I do think things are changing. And I, I think it's really exciting because I think for me, when I talk about diversity in this business, I'm not talking about quotas or numbers or like composition. Diversity in, in creation means better stories, more interesting stories get told. And diverse experiences result in diverse storytelling. You know, and every time something like Moonlight or Get Out or A Quiet Place comes out and everyone marvels at, you know, you know, no one, Jordan Peele couldn't get arrested with that movie. It took him forever to put it together. And he said it when he, you know, he got his DGA award. Like I could, I thought this movie would never get made. So, you know, everybody wants to take credit for their vision now and recognizing a fresh young town. But the fact of the matter is that like nobody, you know, nobody said yes. But when you bring in new voices, you get new shit and we need new shit. I, uh, some of the best advice I ever got was somebody told me, um, most people aren't going to get what you do No, and you have to find the people that do ever. And, uh, it's easier to say no than yes. So it you, is, it's safe to yeah. say no. Right. I mean, this is a risk averse country and this is a risk averse business. And when I was a baby comic, like I'd work at these clubs and I was always just, I was just like an R-rated comic. I'm not because I was trying to be cute, but because that's just who I am. I was raised by single dad and. I think my first word was probably fuck. Um, and I, to be authentic, I just spoke on stage the way I spoke in my life. You know, uh, this was a time when there were not a million female comics and everyone was like, oh, you're trying to be goofy. You're trying to be like this. And this one club owner just gave me this speech about how I was trying to be like dudes and it was never going to fucking work and I needed to give up. And and I just remember him coming up to me later, years later in L.A. when I had like, you know, two TV shows and being like, I always, I was like, don't even fucking start the I always knew thing. I'm not interested because everybody in this business wants to come back after something successful and tell you they always saw it and you, they didn't, yeah. they didn't. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually not bitter. I don't hold a grudge, but I really do not tolerate people who want to come back and take credit for something that they have no, no business taking credit for. 
And everything wonderful. And I tell this to people who are frustrated. Everything wonderful, people turned down. I mean, Get Out got turned got turned down everywhere. Archer got turned down everywhere, everywhere. You know, and now those same networks are trying to buy it buy it back in syndication. So um, most people are never going to get what you do, especially if you're trying to do something interesting or smart. Yeah. And you just have to be relentless. Yeah. You mentioned earlier um, you sort of came up in an era when there were a lot of very uh, specific expectations of what black comics mm-hmm. were doing. You mm-hmm. just talked about that there are a lot of sort of cultural gatekeeping around women who are comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of cultural gatekeeping around like nerd culture. Oh, 100%. Um, so you kind of have this- Inside Venn- and outside, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. You kind of have mm-hmm. this Venn diagram intersection of like gatekeeping. Yes, of like isolation <laughs> and projection. <laughs> How did you navigate that? How did you get to where you are through all of those- uh, tricky straits. I want to make it really clear that like, you know, it's it, hindsight's twenty twenty. Like it's really easy to be like, well, this is what I did when yeah. I'm looking and I'm reflecting on it. And I think people also, some people will reject or reclaim that it's a narrative that I'm pushing that like I was a weird kid and, and it made me tough. But I was a weird fucking kid. Man, I used to, my mom used to drop me off at the library when it opened and I would spend most of the day looking at pathology books, just like goiters and homunculi and tumors. Man, I was super into it by myself at like six and seven years old. I mean, I was a weirdo. We didn't have a TV. I lived in an ashram for a while. My parents were vegetarians. I had like no way in. I was at least a foot taller than all of my classmates until now. And I just had no common ground with people. Because we didn't have a television, I was a voracious reader. So I was like really into books and I, you know, and I just could not find a way to connect with people. I think it just eventually made me like a self-sufficient person, but not because I was smart or cool, but because that was my only option. And so when there's cultural gatekeeping going on, when there are people who are telling you inside a community and also outside a community who you should be, but for a long time they didn't give a shit, you just stop caring. I just stopped caring at a very young age what people thought of me. Which was very liberating. So like, for example, with nerd culture, when, you know, when I was, when I started getting involved in the gaming community, I mean, I've been, I've been gaming my whole life. And when I started kind of more presentationally getting involved with the gaming community and people were like doubting my gaming credentials, I really didn't give a fuck what they thought. And, and I, I wrote, I wrote a letter like, you know, once I was like steaming about somebody saying like, you've never played a game and you've never held a controller in your life. I mean, the same old shit that guys were hurling at me my whole life. And I just was like... I was fucking playing like LCD games when I was in middle school. There, there was a, a laundromat across from my house that I probably put like $1,000 worth of quarters in in one summer. Like I, I don't even know why I care enough to fucking inform you about this, but it's just so insane that like anytime a woman says she likes something, everybody wants to be like, well, well tell me what your favorite game is. Well, what is what did you do? And when did you, and what console games do you play? And what's your, your fucking gamer head? Like I just, I just don't give a shit. You know what I mean? And so for me, it was birthed of, of like a, a social isolation, but as an adult, it just manifested itself in not caring. But, you know, not caring can be very powerful. And I, I, looking back now, I realize that what got me through it was I'd always been kind of isolated and I'd always liked the things I liked. I mean, people told me, a lot of people told me both black and white, like this is, this is what black culture is. Like black people like these things and they don't like these things. And that came from black people and it came from white people. When someone says that to you, it really it, – it's like it negates – it's like a negating statement because essentially what it's saying is like you're not valid because you either like or don't like these things. And I just leaned into all the things that I wasn't allowed to like. So I was a skateboarder and I listened to punk and the first album I bought was Metallica's Kill Em All. And I really relished being the only black person at a black flag show. 
Um, because, you know, everybody was telling me I didn't belong, but I'd never belonged. So like, what was new? I, I liked what I liked. And when people told me that it wasn't okay, then that was the stuff I pursued really aggressively. And now, you know, those same communities want to try to claim you. And that's fine because I guess what I want is for like the little Asian kid who's into metal or the little Mexican kid who likes punk or the little black girl who wants to play video games. I want them to have somebody. I want them to have a totem because I didn't have a totem. Um, And I want them to be able to say, well, you know, don't tell me what to do. Like there's someone who's successful and she likes the stuff that I like. You know, just being a kid is, it's just so hard already. And it's especially hard now. I mean, no one was shooting at us when I was a kid, you know, and, and you can just feel super alone. So I guess to answer your question, the way I dealt with it was that it just did, it felt like more of the same. And so it was familiar to me that people were saying like, you know, what you're saying about yourself is a lie or, you know, you belong here and not here. I just kept doing what I was doing kind of without care or, or, um, or uh, for the consequence. And I, I think that's really important. And it's easy for me to say, look, I'm, I'm, unmarried and I have no kids and I can take a lot of risks in my life. And so it's easier for me than someone who's got more constraints. You know, I had a family that, you know, were hippy dippy and super supportive and we didn't have money, but they supported me in my choices. But I do think that like, you know, especially in the nerd community where there's a lot of psychic bruising and there are a lot of people who feel like, you know, finally they're getting their due after like, you know, eons of abuse and ostracism and they don't want people co-opting it. I get it. I understand. But you're doing the same thing that was done to you in this, you know, very obvious pattern of kind of, you know, man kicks dog. It doesn't serve anybody. You know, I mean, the great thing about nerd culture specifically is that it should be all encompassing. Like if you feel like an outsider, then you should be welcomed because we all know what it's like to feel ostracized. It is really important to me in the things that I do to create a space for people who don't feel like they have one. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel nerd culture, gaming culture especially can open itself up more? I think about this a lot in terms of like those people's pain is real, Mm -hmm. but it's not their right to inflict it on the rest of the world. And I like, that's a tricky thing to talk with people about, Mm -hmm. you know? So Mm -hmm. how, how do you, how have you approached that question when you've had those conversations, if you have? Right. Four years ago, I want to say, I did this night, this event at uh, at Comic-Con. It's Adam Savage's event, and I think Will Wheaton also participates in it. I believe it's called WootCon, and it's like a thing that happens like the Wednesday before Comic-Con. I might be getting the name. Yeah, it sounds right, but I, yeah, like I said, how did I get here today? Um, and it's just a celebration of nerd culture. There's like performances and songs and readings and everything, and they asked me to read the letter, this open letter that I wrote to the gaming community about like telling people to fuck off that were like doubting my my gaming street cred. And this guy came up to me after the show and he said, you know, I want you to know I was one of those people and I'm really ashamed of myself. And I said, I want you to know I'm so fucking stoked you came up and told me that because I'm not here to scold you. I was just here to defend something that I love. Like that letter was, yeah, that letter was scolding. But the main thing I was saying was like, don't come here and tell me that I don't love something that I love. Like it's not, it's not your place. It's not fair. And you're not entitled to tell me who I am. And he said, I know what that feels like when someone tries to tell you who you are. 
And we just had this really great moment. I, I followed him on Twitter. I still follow him. He's a great guy. He's really his, um I don't know if it's my place to give you his, his Twitter handle. <laughs> um, but I really, really like him because um, he's really honest about his personal pain online and talking about the stuff he's gone through in his life. And that exact pain that you're talking about is something he expresses like really freely. And I'm, I really respect him. And I really respected that he came up and said that to me. And that's one of the few kind of like face-to-face conversations I've had with someone in the community who sees themselves as a, as a part of the community and was drawing that line with regards to me or people like me. That pain is real and it's ongoing. And I think it's easy for me to say I was a nerdy kid because then people go, well, look at your life now. It's not the same. But that doesn't negate my own pain, like, you know, the stuff that I went through and the bullying that I got and the times I got beaten up. You know what I mean? Like, I feel it. Like, we we had the same experience. So I guess what I talk about when I do talk about it is that I see that your pain is real, that like you said, the way to handle it is not to try to inflict it on other people in some kind of like, you know, grotesque schadenfreude effort and to focus and connect on the things that we all have in common. And I'm not talking about like all of us kumbaya all the world, but all of us in this particular community. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I hosted the, the, the Ubisoft um, press conference at E3 for five years. And, I, you know, that just – the only reason I won that over was relentlessness. I mean, I did it one year. Everybody hated me. I did it another year. Most people hated me. I did it a third year. Some people hated me. I mean, I just kept coming back. And I just kept showing them that it was something that I cared about. And in the end, you know, you can't – I don't know that you're able to have a conversation with every single person. It's Unfortunately, it's our nature as animals to get kicked and then kick. And we have to do more to – take like our psychic pain and turn it into into a power into force for good um and and that's something i guess i try to do in in my work and and trying to just be kind of like a kind person generally i mean i try try to appeal to my own and other people's highest sense of themselves i'm not a like a self-help person but like i try to try not to be a dick (laughs) and i just like actively try not to be a dick Mm -hmm. and with that guy who kind of came up to me in a really really vulnerable like state you know my response was like, I'm so grateful that you felt brave enough to do that. You, mm. you, like you gave me a gift, you know, because it can, it can feel really, it can feel like shit when, you know, you go out and you do something, you talk about something you love and then everybody's like, you don't belong here. You're full of shit. You're a liar. You're, you know, you are a lie. And, you know, maybe that's just like a, like a lifetime process that this particular community has got to go through, but there are just assholes everywhere, right? Yeah. Just yeah. everywhere. Uh, theologians always get mad when I say this, but I have long maintained that the central message of every great religion is don't be a dick. Don't be a dick. You're right. You're right. And you know what? Sorry, guys. You got a big old book. It's just got one upshot. Don't be a dick. Um, but uh, I, I do got to ask this, not in the sense of, of gatekeeping, but I'm genuinely curious. When you were plunking quarters in it at, the, at that laundromat, mm-hmm. what was your favorite oh, Defender. arcade game? Defender. Defender? What do you yeah, like Defender. about that game? I don't know. Defender was such a hot game, right? Yeah. Like I just felt like physically it was it was just, it was was pretty simple, right? It's just like one joystick to like go forward, up and down, and the other one to shoot people. But you just physically, you got, it was really engaging in a way that a lot of other games weren't. I love shooting things. To this day, all of my games are all FPS and TPS games. Uh, I don't want to drive a tiny car and I don't want to smush mushrooms and I don't want to play fake tennis. I just want to shoot things that might say something about my like latent child-based rage, but I like to destroy. That was probably one. I mean, even though I was in a spaceship, that was one of my first like shooting games. It had the same feel as like Galaga or Space Invaders, but but it, for some reason, it just, you felt more active because you were like going, you know, it was like, it was like a side run. So you were like going somewhere rather than just like shooting up and waiting for people to destroy you. Like you just felt like you were more active. And there weren't that many arcade games that like the big ones were Defender, Galaga, Cetapede, Cubert, Tempest. Tempest was a fun one. God, I love Tempest. 
those are like the main ones. I'm very old, you guys. Very old. And then Donkey Kong and, and then Pac-Man, Miss Pac-Man. And the first handheld I ever got was like the little baby, like LCD, like Donkey Kong that I begged my father to buy me. And then, unlike most people, played the shit out of. Like I played that until I had like Carpal Tunnel. Hmm. Well, uh, you uh, host a lot of things. You have hosted a lot of things over your career, mm-hmm. TV shows, comedy shows, et cetera. You have this new show on AMC that's going to air after Diet mm-hmm. Land, I believe. Mm-hmm. And what, uh, what is it about hosting? Like what's that task? It, it's sort of like, it's sort of like acting. It's sort of like stand up, but right. it's not, it's You're kind right. of in a weird space between them. You're right. Shit. <laughs> um, I wish that I could say that like I chose it in like some magical, like it's my destiny. I mean, essentially, I'm curious about people. I love talking to people. I mean, I used to do your job for a long time and I loved it. And I love podcasting and I love hearing about people's lives. But honestly, it probably all stems back to the fact that I was a fan of a show called Talk Soup. And then when that chair was available, I auditioned for it and campaigned for it and eventually got it. And that was the first thing I ever hosted. And that's probably the purest expression of who I am as a host. It was just this playful kind of sprawling mishmash of jokes and like mayhem and things happening in the moment. And I loved it. I loved that show so much. I loved what I was able to do when I was there. I loved what it became because it really changed while I was there. Like we changed it into something different. And that was where I really cut my teeth as a host. You know, unfortunately, when you're good at something, and I'm not like, I'm awesome. But like when you're passionate about something and you're good at it, you know, those jobs keep coming to you. This new show on AMC is so interesting because it is an after show. And for people out there, you know, obviously watch T- Walking Dead and they watch Talking Dead with Chris Hardwick. It's, it's in that mold. It's an after show for a show called Dietland. It's a little different in that Dietland is um, a show based on a very popular book right. about uh, an overweight – really brilliant writer who's like waiting for her life to start. Like, which I think, you know, this is a very human thing to do. Women do it more than men, but I think everybody does it. Like, I'm, you know, as soon as I lose 50 pounds or 20 pounds or 10 pounds, I'm going to, my life's going to start. It's going to start tomorrow. It's going to start in a week. As soon as I fit into this outfit, you know, my life's going to be amazing. And the whole book is about her taking this journey where she, she stops thinking about like her life that way and just starts fucking living it. It's really about body positivity and about kind of like throwing off like societal conventions and these like completely like unattainable beauty standards that we have. And it's such a smart show. And I think it could apply to a lot of different parts of our culture, not just like not just weight, but but beauty and sexuality and social everything. Like how we just think that like we've got to be like something we're looking at online. Like, you know, my life isn't meaningful because I don't have a boat or because I don't have famous friends or because you know, I haven't flown on a private plane, like all these false, these, this set of false constructs that's being peddled every day by, you know, people like the Kardashians and just a culture built around that set of ethics. But the after show, rather than just being a digest show where we just talk about what happened on the show, it's really like about exploding a, a plot point on the show into popular culture and talking about it mm. in a bigger, more global way. It's been so hard for women to break into talk, you know, in the late night space. And, um, and, it, and I'm lucky because... I have nine episodes and it's on cable and I get to say bad words and I get to do what I want. And um, and I'm really excited because when AMC brought it to me, they were like, we want this to be more than just an after show. And I was like, great, because I don't want to do an after show. I want to do something bigger and better and, and better than that. And it's been rad. It's been really, really rad. I mean, we only, we're only doing nine episodes this first season. So it's great because 
in a lot of ways with only nine episodes, you can just kind of go apeshit bananas. Who knows if we're going to get a second season? You know what I mean? Might as well go crazy. You know, I, I was on a daytime show for six years and it was really fun, but we had a lot of constraints. It was daytime and it was, you know, the Tiffany network and, you know, when we had to really make sure we were appealing to the broadest swath of people and that we weren't kind of falling down on one side or the other of the political spectrum, and which made perfect sense. And I really enjoyed going there. And there were five of us, so it was never really a heavy lift for any one person. But now it's just like my thing and it's so dope. And the set looks like, I don't know, like a New York loft that somebody painted when they were drunk. I love it. It's been really like the best time ever. I just want to say my grandmother who watched the talk until she passed would have loved if everybody on it started screaming obscenities. Oh, well, I'm so bummed she's going to miss this show. (laughs) She sounds awesome. What's so fun is when I would go out and do stand-up. I did stand-up in Cleveland and this woman comes up and she's pushing her mother in a wheelchair and, um, the woman's maybe in her 40s and the mom's like, you know, in her 60s or 70s. And I like say hi, shake the woman's hand. And she's not the fan. The mom is the fan. She just listened to me say every single curse word I could possibly think of, plus a few I made up. I'm like, oh my God. And your mom, the mother goes, oh my God, you're a fucking ham. Like it was just so great. Like you don't, you know, your mom was young once. You know what I mean? We all have this idea, you know, like, oh, the ladies who watch the show are in their 40s and their 50s. We don't want to offend them. They were 20. Right. They're probably, you know, they're probably smoking dope in the garage and their kids are at school. Like we have this idea about people and especially about women that like, you know, we've got to protect them from the truth, which is just a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> well, I do want to, I do want to ask, we're kind of heading in to the end of the show, but I want to ask, you know, you said the only character you've played longer than Lana is Aisha Tyler. <laughs> and in the course of playing Aisha Tyler as a host, <laughs> as a stand up, as a Ubisoft press conference host, <laughs> as all of those things, like what? What has changed about not just yourself, but the character you play? You know, like what have you learned about yourself from being yourself? That's a good question. The main thing that has changed about me from when I was uh, like a young person or maybe like a young person in this business to now is that I've stopped giving a shit what people think of me. And I said earlier, I never did. But I guess that there was a, a time when I thought, especially in this business, like to be accepted, I have to look a certain way. Like I thought that there were certain kind of barriers to entry, you know, like I've got to have a purse that's expensive and I've got to, you know, because that was kind of what it seemed like that was the, that was the currency of the culture here in, in this, in this business. And that's definitely fallen away. Like right now I'm just trying to uh, cleave as, as tightly as I can to like a life of ideas um, rather than a life of things. And that's very been very freeing. Uh, and it wasn't like a decision. It just was like a sea change. I just started to be like, oh, God, I like, I wish I had less stuff. And I got rid of a lot of my stuff. I like, I didn't read any articles, guys. I didn't read any New York Times articles. I did this on my own, okay? Fuck you. Uh, but I I, li- I have about 15% of what I owned like five years ago. And it was re- – I just – one day I just started to think like all my stuff was really burdensome and um, and like didn't mean anything and like who was I trying to impress and stuff is stupid. And I just got rid of all of it. And um, – and so I live like a much leaner life now, and that's just cleared space to kind of have experiences rather than like, you know, things I can show people. And it's funny because, you know, especially in this business, you know, like when people come over, they're like, oh, you know, why don't you have like some big house? And I'm like, I don't, like, I don't care about that stuff. Uh, and I think it's very disorienting because this business is just so like so-and-so was spotted with so-and-so in Ibiza and they, you know what I mean? It's so dumb. That's probably the main thing that's changed about me, which I find very interesting. I'm always kind of looking at it. I'm like, well, sh- should I not live in this ridiculous bachelor pad? <laughs> should I, should I have more in the fridge than a single Trader Joe's burrito? No, Trader Joe's burritos are awesome. They're yeah. delicious. They're easy to make. 
you know, I think um, I'm trying, like I said earlier, um, to be as authentic as I can and not let, I mean, I think everybody's had this feeling, like you walk into a place and like everybody's super fancy or everyone seems super capable or self-possessed and you just think like, ooh, I'm, I don't feel like these people, <laughs> I, I don't belong here at all. I mean, I, that's a feeling I had for most of my career was like, you know, they'll discover eventually I'm a total fraud, you know, and then just slowly you realize that everybody feels that way. And, and regardless of that, that's not really important. Like, just do your stuff yeah. the best way that you can and try to grow and be better all the time. Go to people that you respect, see if they'll share experiences and knowledge with you and like. Get fucked up on the weekends with your friends. <laughs> it's a pretty simple life philosophy. I'm just, I'm trying to do my best work. And I'm also trying to um, be as prolific as I can, make as many things as I can. Like I only have a little bit of, I'm not dying. I mean, we're all dying. We're all dying. We're all going to die. But I mean, I'm like just trying to make as much stuff as I can and, and, and be like really engaged. And on that point, I want to plug in case we run out of time that I directed a film that's available right now. Oh yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, my very first movie, because that's what I really want to do with the rest of my time, mm. uh, called access. It's a thriller. Mm-hmm. I crowdfunded it and, um, made it for $200,000 in seven days in 2016. And, and it was just an example of like not waiting for Hollywood to give me permission. I actually never even took it out. I just decided to crowdfund it made it in seven days because that was the amount of money we had time for and the amount of time I had available to me and made this weird little fever dream of a thriller that takes place entirely in a car driving through LA in rush hour traffic. And it ended up, I thought my mom will see this on Vimeo. Hi mom. Um, And it ended up going to 10 festivals and winning two awards and getting picked up for distribution. And now you can find it on on iTunes and Amazon and on demand on your cable, on your local cable provider. Wow. So it just goes to show you like, do your best work Without real expectation or, or like the idea that like I need someone else to endorse this before it's valid. I think that's something we do. Like I've got this idea. Well, no one's told me they like it. So maybe it's not good. But I don't fuck those people. Like do your thing. Yeah. You know, like I think podcasts are a great example. Like you start making a podcast and you have an idea for it and then it evolves and it grows and it changes and you get better at it every day. And then all of a sudden like it's crystal clear to you what the show is and like how it should feel to people when they listen then all of a sudden your brand reveals itself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like a lot of that stuff is just in the execution and then not letting fear rule you or keep you from doing what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So we end every episode by asking our guests some of the same questions. I'm going to ask you those, whether it's a movie or a TV show or a book or a game or a song you listen to on the way over, what's the last pop culture thing that you took in and what did you think of it? I like this book called The Magicians by Love Grossman. Oh, I've yeah. read all of them. Yeah. And so I'm really into the series. Yeah. 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 I always say it's like everybody at Hogwarts was doing cocaine and having sex. And it's pretty <laughs> great. So I really love that show. I just finished it. I love that show too. We had um, Sarah Gamble, the showrunner. I love Sarah. Oh, yeah, she's yeah, cool. She's great. When you get recognized on the street or in Whole Foods or whatever, uh, or buying a Trader Joe's burrito, uh, what is it that people recognize you for most often? Criminal Minds. Yeah? Well- it used to be Friends, mm. but now it's Criminal Minds. Mm-hmm. And lots of people like Archer, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's on my face. Yeah. But if someone's standing in front of me and they hear me talking, mm-hmm. then they turn around and th- then they yell a lot at me. Who is the comedian you have learned the most from, living or dead, that you never met? Well, look, every single comedian alive today is trying to be Richard Pryor. Yeah. Whether they know it or not. Maybe they're trying to be Eddie Murphy was trying to be Richard Pryor. They're trying to be Dave Chappelle was trying to be – we're all trying to be Richard Pryor. Mm-hmm. Because Richard Pryor was the first guy to really tell like a painful and unvarnished truth on stage Mm. and to challenge the audience to look at him 
like look directly at him while he was telling them the most painful, awful, agonizing things about his life. Mm. And before that, comedy was just jokes, right? Yeah. It was just take my wife, please, you know, blah, blah, blah. And 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 after Richard Pryor, it was like, this is my truth. Mm. Um, so we're all trying to be Richard Pryor. He's he's the greatest comedian that ever lived. Do you remember is there a routine of his you particularly well? My dad took me to see Live at the Sunset Strip when I was a kid. Oh wow. Yeah, which mm. is a hardcore show. Yeah. A hardcore show. And uh and I remember not understanding a lot of the material, but understanding like what it what it felt like. Mm. You know, like when I think about when I actually think about Richard Pryor, like I tear up because I just think like he, he was such an imperfect person and he had such a terrible childhood and he turned all of that into this like magic. And when I saw that comedy as a kid, and I this is another reason why I wasn't someone who wanted to be comedian. I just didn't think that was possible. I thought that he was an alien. I was like, who who else can do what this person is doing? There is nothing like this. And so it just didn't seem like an attainable thing. Like no one else is going to be this guy. Like this guy's this guy's killed it for everybody else. Yeah. But I I I've gone back and watched that special many times since, and it's just it's one of those things like where he would say you know stuff about doing drugs and catching on fire, and and people would laugh uncomfortably because they didn't know like what to feel. You know what I mean? And and ah, I got and it was just it was just this thing of like him forcing you to like listen. And I'm forcing you to lean in. And then him being insanely hilarious at the same time. And whenever I talk to young comics, I always say um, being funny is important, but it's not as important as telling the truth. Truth should be paramount in everything that you do. Because if you see somebody funny, you go, that was really funny. But when you see somebody telling the truth, you go, oh, my God, you can't believe you have to see this fucking special. Like, you can't believe what this guy was saying. And that's why, like, Chris Rockwell, I think, is an extraordinary performer. Extraordinary. Extraordinary comic, extraordinary writer, extraordinary mind. Like, the most interesting thing he's done is tambourine. That's his Netflix yeah, special. Yeah, because it's the it's the it's his reflective. It's the reflective special. It's the special where he tells the truth about who he is. And, you know, I think every comic is dying to do one special where they really, really get it out there. Well, uh, Aisha Tyler, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. Uh, Archer's on Hulu and your show's on AMC and you're all over. So uh, let's do it together. Archer is on FXX and also on Hulu. Yes. Um, Whose Line Is Anyway is on CW. It's also syndicated on Bravo. Uh, Criminal Minds is on CBS Wednesdays at 10 o'clock. Starts again in the fall. And you can see my new show on AMC entitled Unapologetic with Aisha Tyler Mondays after Diet Land. Aisha, thank you so much for doing that for me. And thank you for coming in. <laughs> you never would have gotten it all right. I barely did. <laughs> thank you. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by me, Todd Vanderwerf, and I am not a voiceover artist on one of TV's longest running animated comedies. But if you're listening to this and you think I should be, I'm always open to it. My producer is Bridget Armstrong, the executive producer of audio at Vox Media, Nishak Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. Our logo design is thanks to Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreich, and our production coordinator is Carrie Clements. Our audio engineering and studio are thanks to Rebel Talk Network. This week's recording engineer is Ernie Hurtado. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or you know, wherever you get, you get your podcasts. It really helps us get word out about the show. We really appreciate it when you do it. If you have something else you want to say, you can email me at Todd at Vox.com. You can email the show at ityi.podcast at Vox.com. That's itye.podcast at Vox.com. Or you can always tweet at me at Tavoti, T-V-O-T-I, Tavoti. We're going to be back next week with another person from the world of arts and entertainment, somebody who I think is interesting. And until then, 
I'm going to take up bullet journaling. That's what I've taken from this conversation. Aisha doesn't do it, but I'm going to take it. It's going to be for me. <laughs>